beginning at John chapter 6 and through chapter 7 into chapter 8, opposition to Jesus has been growing in his public ministry. Many have refused to believe his claims. Some have believed, quote unquote, as indicated in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. We'll come on, comment on that in just a moment. But Jesus knows very well what is going on. In our text, he confronts these people with a focus on the subject of freedom. Verse 20 indicates that he's in the temple area as he says these words. Let me read verses 31, 31 through 36 to you this morning. This, these words will be our text. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom. This is July 4th weekend. That's a word, a concept, an idea that we have very much on our hearts and minds today. It is something everybody wants, something everyone needs. Yet how many can really declare, I am free? Jesus has some important things to say upon that idea of freedom today that we want to look at. Remember that Jesus himself lived in a time when human liberty was in very great peril. He himself was part of a Roman nation slave to a mighty dictator. However, his comments were not so much political as spiritual. I think it's important to keep that in mind as we look at this text. It's spiritual freedom that's the emphasis, not political, although certainly one affects the other. Let's begin with the essence of freedom in verses 31 and 32. Just what is freedom? What does being free mean? First, it has much to do with Jesus' words and the, I, the concept of truth. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice the word abides, abiding in truth. We abide in our homes. What do we find in our homes? A, a center for our lives, a place of rest a place of refuge. That's how we need to abide in the truth of the word of Jesus Christ. We need to live in it. We need to identify with it. We need to rest in it. We need to find a refuge for our souls in it, in the truth of Jesus, who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says these words to the Jews who had believed in him. Who were these Jews? Were they all believers as we think of evangelical conversions today? I think not. If you go back earlier in the chapter, look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery 
and they placed her in his midst. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to them, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Verse 19, they said to him, where is your father? Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? And verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? By looking just at those passages, we find that it's interesting that it says in verse 30, many believed in him. It seemed, it seemed like many did not believe in him. I think that indeed was the case. It was not genuine faith and commitment. It was simply largely outward profession. If you go on in this chapter, verse 33, to look at it in a moment, we find verbal hostility there. Down in verse 48, we find verbal abuse. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And down in verse 59, they're getting ready to stone him. So this is far from a believing, sympathetic group that were ministering, listening to Jesus minister on this particular day. Let's take a look at that word truth. Go back to the word truth. That concept alerts us to the idea of freedom having a moral dimension, not just a political one. Even God has limits to his freedom. He cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. So it's a limited freedom, a moral freedom. A liberty of self-centered choices is not true freedom, and that's how many people think of it. Freedom is not doing as you please, but rather doing as you ought in relationship to the truth of God's revealed word. We need God's yes, and we need God's no. We need God's mind. We need his light. And that's why James 1.25 speaks of the perfect law of liberty. Often we don't associate law with liberty. Law is restricting. Law confines us. Well, that's not a bad thing. Think of a train on its tracks. The believer is the train the tracks is the word of truth of Jesus himself. As the train remains on the tracks, it's quite limited, isn't it? But it's able to get to the direction that it is going. If somehow the train could by itself jump off the tracks, it would be on the ground, which would represent lawlessness, it's the world of sin, where people are just simply bogged down. They're not on the right path to eternal life. Both the Puritans and our founding fathers understood quite well what Jesus is speaking about here. The importance of truth, the importance of righteousness. The French diplomat de Tocqueville visited our country and he looked around, what's the secret of this nation? And he said, the secret is this, this is a very righteous nation. Very, people are very good. Now he looked at outwardly, of course, but more or less they were reflecting the principles of the word of God in those days. Listen to these words of Leonard Cochran. The difference between a river and a swamp is that a river is confined within banks, while a swamp is not. Because a river is confined and channeled, it has life. It is a mighty, moving, living thing. Because a swamp has no restrictions, it becomes thin and stagnant. In our modern life, we boast of freedom, 
But we want life without restrictions and without confinement. But we forget that such living becomes stagnant. We are blessed in this church to have the word of truth and to believe it and to accept it. That's the essence then of freedom. But let's look secondly at the enemy of freedom. Why is it so hard to feel like we're free? It's because there's an enemy to freedom, and that comes out in verses 33 and 34, introduced to us in verse 33. As these Jews, who supposedly believed in him, they answered Jesus' words in verses 31 and 32 by saying, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? They were very proud of being the offspring of Abraham. Notice the word anyone. We've never been a slave to anyone. Did they forget their historical background of being in bondage to the Egyptians, to the Philistines, to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and in those days the Romans? At that very moment Jesus was speaking, there was a Roman garrison stationed not too far away from them. And you can look around the streets of Jerusalem and see all kinds of soldiers stationed here and there. Yet here they are saying, we've never been slaved to anyone. Well, I think maybe, not only were they forgetting their history, but possibly, quite probably, they were thinking in terms of the spiritual aspect of it. Jesus is challenging their religion, challenging their spirituality as he calls people to himself. So Jesus answers. He begins with a double assertion of his divine authority. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now in the Old Testament time, the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. But now the Lord, through his Son, is present in this life. And he says, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, as he speaks his words. And he speaks about the enemy of their alleged freedom. What does he say? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There's the enemy, sin. The sinful hearts of men and women and children the sin problem. Jesus says, it's not just your sinners, you're slaves to your sin. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were millions of slaves, two types. One were paid wages and treated very, very well. They almost were part of the family. But there was a second group of slaves, and those are the ones we usually think of, the ones usually chained, beaten, not having much freedom at all to do anything. I think our context supports that kind of slavery, that chain, that bond, strong bondage of the heart of man with which we are born because of the sin of Adam. We're all born that way. Notice the word practices. Some translations have the word commits. It's an important word. Everyone who practices sin commits sin. We all commit sin. We all practice sin. But if you're a believer... That's not the propensity of your heart. That's not what you're leaning toward. 
you have a desire to please the Lord, and here and there you feel like you are doing that. It's those who have a completely different lifestyle, a, a godless lifestyle, living as if there is no God, certainly not trusting in Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The Jews wanted freedom from Rome, but not from their sins. Sin continues to hold its grip even in our day of 2020. In God's sight, in fact, all that the sinner does, the lost sinner, is commit sins. And that grip progressively gets tighter and tighter as they go through their life. You've heard about the hardening of the heart. People set themselves up. I'm never going to believe that. Don't bother me with that. How hardened their hearts are to the gospel, to the things that we hold sacred. I'm reminded of the the story, I believe it's true, and you probably have heard of it, about the uh, snake uh, trainer who had something like a boa constrictor or a python, one of those big, huge snakes, and he'd come out on stage and he'd have put, wrap the snake wrap around him, and then the, take the snake off, and people ooh nod, this is amazing. He did that for several nights in a row until one night he got ready to take the snake off and he could not remove the snake because during that time the snake had become stronger, muscle memory, etc and had his grip upon the snake holder and crushed him to death in the sight of the audience. That's what sin does to the human heart. We talk about this theologically as total depravity or total inability. The condition of the natural man is worse than most people think. And that's why Jesus says here, everyone who practices sin, who has a lifestyle of disobedience to God, a rebellion against God, is a slave to sin. Harold Decker, who used to fill in every once in a while for Dr. Peter Ellsville on the Back to God Hour radio program years ago, he said this, the tyranny of all tyrannies is the empire of sin. Its subjects are millions of souls. Its dictator is Satan. Its secret police are the demons of the devil. Its weapons are pride and passion. Its H-bomb is the lie. Its labor camp is the present world. Its death house is hell. Our founding fathers were not necessarily evangelical men, although I think here and there many of them were. But together, they had enough context of the Word of God, the truth of the Bible, to understand this. And so when they built, wrote the Constitution and debated on it, they built what we call the checks and balances of the three forms, of, three parts of government, the executive, the legislative, the judicial. They knew the problem of the sinful heart of men, and they wanted to control that because they knew the great enemy of freedom was the sinful heart. Well, rather bleak outlook as far as we go so far. Can anyone free us more spiritual bondage. We need an emancipator. What's an emancipator? One who frees someone from restraint or bondage. Abraham Lincoln called the great emancipator because of his proclamation that the slaves in the South during the Civil, at the end of the Civil War could be freed. William Wilberforce was another wonderful godly man in Britain who helped to put a stop to the slave trade there. They were emancipators. And so we find in verses 35 and 36, the emancipator of freedom. And of course, that's the Son of God himself. 
Before we look at verse 36, I want to focus on verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. What's Jesus talking about there? Well, he's saying, remember that a slave in a household, even those who were treated well, were not really considered fully part of the household. They were not part of the family, especially if you were a one that was chained in that kind of bondage. And it was possible that your term of service would end, did not last forever, especially if you were disobedient or did something very wicked, very evil, you could be let go, expelled. Apply this to Christ's audience as he speaks these words, boasting in their family tree by Abraham. And by implication, they're part in God's household. We're from Abraham. We're free. What's all this talk, Jesus? What right do you have to say these things to us? We're fine, outstanding Roman citizens doing our best to obey the authorities, and we also have our own religion, and we're doing fine. But Jesus challenges that assumption here, as well as later down in this chapter. Go down to verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would not be doing the works you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the work your father did. Of course, later on he says, your father, the devil. Down in verse 42, or excuse me, verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Now, in effect, what Jesus is doing here as he addresses his audience at this point is a foreshadowing of the words of Paul in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. So at this point, in effect, he is saying to these people, you are not free people, you are slaves like Ishmael. Remember Ishmael the son of the slave woman, Hagar. You have all of your, your rules, all of your laws, and you're bringing other people into slavery with you. You've forsaken God's truth, and you're not going to remain in God's house and favor forever. A little bit of a hint to the judgment that would come upon the city of Jerusalem not too many years from that point. By way of contrast, Jesus, however, says, the son remains forever. The slave doesn't remain forever. The slave, the slave is on tenuous ground, but the son remains forever. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the heir of all things. He has the right and power to liberate men from their sinful bondage. And that's why he goes on and says there in verse 36, so if the Son set you free, you will be free indeed. Genuine, lasting freedom. Not the freedom 
of our day, which says, I can do anything I want, I will do anything I want. Jesus emancipates by the gospel message. He is soon to give his life as a ransom for many, to redeem them from the bondage of the evil one. He is about to be raised in glorious power from the dead, and ascend into heaven, and continue to build his kingdom from there until that glorious day when he returns to bring a climax to that work. So he speaks to the believers, whatever true believers were there, says, you people are not like Ishmael. You're like Isaac, the son of Sarah, the free woman. How different that is. The true descendants of the covenant seed. As such, you are free from both the guilt and the power of sin. By my spirit, you are going to have the ability to have victory over those dark areas of life. And so that's why Paul uh, writes in Romans chapter 6 at verses 12 through 14, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul writing that to, of course, true believers. In the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 14, says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You're in His family and will be forever. John MacArthur tells of a man who was very much intellectually convinced of the gospel message. He would even agree that it was true but he balked at committing his life to Jesus. When asked why, this was his response. <clears throat> because I don't want to give up my freedom and have to submit to the lordship of Jesus. He was tragically deceived into thinking that all unbelievers are free. But believers are not. Wouldn't you agree that many people in our society today, they uh, look at us and say, those poor people that go to church and they, they've got these rules and regulations and these commitments they have to make and they talk about Jesus as their Lord. Um, I'm so glad I'm not involved with that. I'm glad I have freedom to be free thinking. I have freedom to be able to go out and do what I want to do and not get bogged down in that kind of thing. But you see, only believers in Jesus are truly free because what are we enabled to do that the unbeliever is not able to do? We are free not to sin. We still sin. We still have indwelling sin in our hearts. But by the power of the Lord, as we grow in our sanctification and our Christian life, we're enabled to do things that please the Lord and not disobey His holy law. Let me take just a few moments to talk about a big subject that I'll give you to you, the, the Malcor condensed version. Free will. It's a topic that comes up here and there. Even those who do acknowledge 
the sovereignty of God. God controls everything. But don't touch my free will. I'm hanging on to that. Because I'm a free person. I can make choices of what I want to do. I believe God controls all kinds of things, but don't bother that. What about free will? Well, if this means individuals making choices, that's fine. We never make choices against our will, even if reluctantly. There might come a time when we face a situation, we say, well, I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to go there, but yeah, okay, I'll do it. It's a choice of our will. So each person, therefore, is responsible for those free decisions. A person wills what he or she wills to do. No doubt about it. In accordance with their self-desires. But while free in that sense, and we can use the term free will in that sense if you wish, everyone is born enslaved to the moral condition of their heart, the moral bondage of their heart, their sinful heart, so unbelievers make free decisions of their will, but only in the realm of their sinful bondage. They make this simple choice or that simple choice. I'll rebel against God this way, I'll rebel against God this way. Now, they may not be consciously thinking of it in those terms, but from the perspective of the holy God, they're still lost in their sin, and that's all they do. Again, the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. On the other hand, those who have entrusted their life to Jesus, resting and receiving on him alone for their salvation, they also make free decisions of their will. But they've been given a new nature, by the Spirit of God. They are new people. They've experienced what we call the new birth, or regeneration. The Holy Spirit has begun a work in their heart, is releasing them from that bondage to the evil one. Now, in exchange, they're still servants, they're still slaves, but now they're slaves and servants to Jesus, who said what? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This enables the believer to please him here and there, we hope in a growing way, and the will to make non-sinful choices, although indwelling sin remains. Both unbelievers and believers have free will in their respective spheres of living, but only within limits. So those brief comments about free will come back to our text. Look at the end of verse 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They have a free will, but that's the area they move in. Then look at, again at verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Again, to borrow some words from Dr. Paul Tripp, we're all slaves. The question is, to whom or to what? Everyone is willing to make sacrifices. The question is, to whom or for what? We all follow sets of rules. The question is, whose and for what? We all give our hearts to do something. The question is, to whom 
or to what? We were never hardwired to be free, if by freedom we mean an independent, self-sufficient life. We are created by God to be connected to something vastly bigger than ourselves. Might I add to the discussion of the problem of our simple nature, these other factors that make us, should make us realize, even we who are believers, are our wills, our wills really as free as we might think? Aren't the decisions we make based upon such things as how we're feeling, health-wise, our circumstances, what we might have heard other people say, the weather, our level of knowledge, your IQ, the demands of your employer when you report to work, got rules, regulations, you have to do certain things. And in the home, responsibilities there. In other words, we're not as free to do our thing as we might think we are, quite apart from the problem of our sinful nature. So the really good news on this focus on freedom this morning is the gospel message. That the gospel message is not only about forgiveness of sin and our guilt, praise the Lord for that, but also we have been freed from the bondage to the influence of our sinful nature. We've been given a new nature, and we live in the freedom of that. We serve a new master, and it's a joy to serve him. Biblical freedom is a marvelous gift of God's grace to sinful men. I hope you know that. I hope you have experienced that. And that with Paul, you will hear his words in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I close with Billy the Bird and Freddie the Fish. Billy the Bird was flying around one day, a very hot day. He looked down at a beautiful pond of water, so clear, beautiful, refreshing. You know, I think I'd like to cool off there. That, I like to experience that. So he dives down into the water, and for a few moments, it's, it's glorious. Oh, this is wonderful. I feel so much better. But then something begins to happen. He realizes he cannot breathe. He cannot exist here. And so he desperately moves himself. Wonderful air. Meanwhile, Freddie the fish has seen what's happened. He's often wondered himself, what's, what's above that water line up there? It seems like I see things moving around. I think I'd like to find out what it's like up there. And so he takes himself out of the water and lands up on the shoreline. And for a few moments, he's enjoying the sunshine and what he sees. But then pretty soon, he's having problems. He can't breathe. He realizes, I've got to get back into the water. And so he flips and flops back into the water. What's the lesson of Billy the Bird and Freddie the Fish? They are not really free unless they exist in the atmosphere for which they were created. The bird for the air, the fish for the water. Man was not created to do whatever he wants to do. He was created to be what God wanted him to be, a loving person who freely wills, even if imperfectly, to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. That's Christian liberty. That's true freedom. Free in this life and free in death. Free in things present and things to come. Free forever. Because if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage that you have so wonderfully given to us through the writing of the Apostle John. And this morning we've had the privilege to consider it and to think about it. May your Holy Spirit take these words and apply them to our own individual hearts. May we rejoice in the privilege we have to serve you and your Son Jesus, our Lord and our Master. In whose name we pray, amen.